Do you remember as a kid when you were waiting for your birthday to come around? It took forever. Or when you were waiting for Christmas, agonizing when you had to wait that long. It seemed like it would never come. And the school year would seem so long. I can remember once sitting in fifth grade and the teacher was talking about how we would eventually graduate in such and such a year and I thought, gosh, that's seven more years from right now. I'll never get there. It'll never happen. I'll never, uh, it'll never uh, arrive. That's how far away time seemed. And then you get older. And the time from Christmas to spring break isn't very slow at all. It's pretty fast. And the time it takes to get to Christmas, that speed seems to increase. It seems that the older we get, that time moves more like those rolling digits of an old speedometer moving quicker all the time. My fraternal grandfather, his name was Fred McBrayer, Frederick Cornelius McBrayer, which is a magnificent name. He was, according to my father, a very hard man when he was young. That is, he was hard on his kids, at least hard on my dad. I understand that. He was born during the First World, World War. He grew up poor. He started raising kids during the Great Depression. He buried two children. He lost family far too soon. And I won't load you down today with all the tragedy that he endured. But he aged well. And I'm not just talking about those infamous Scott-Irish good looks. No, he softened over time. He loved music. He played a lot of guitar, a lot of Carter family songs. He was a songster, a music leader. He led music at the local Methodist church twice a month when the preacher was on the circuit. And then he led music the other two Sundays at the Baptist church. And on those months where there was a fifth Sunday he organized the Murray County Singing Convention and hosted all-day sing-alongs with choirs and quartets and trios and shape note singing. I didn't get to spend a lot of time with him. But my favorite memory is him sitting in the corner of his couch. That was his, his seat. And he always wore slacks and a pressed, starched shirt and sometimes a tie if he was going to town. He was a tax and crop assessor. And he would sit there in his chair and whittle around on his fingernails or on a stick with his old-timer pocket knife and tell stories and throw his head back and he had the best, longest, deepest belly laugh you have, you have ever heard. He loved to laugh almost as much as he loved to sing old gospel songs. My grandmother, his wife, was killed in a car accident on my 27th birthday. And he never got over it. He passed away within six months of her death. And I visited more during those six months after my grandmother died than probably my 27 years previously combined. He was grieving, but he was still his jolly self. He shared the best one-liner with me on one of those visits. He was talking about aging, coming to the end of his life, how I was so young at the time and had my whole life ahead of me. And he said, Son, 
it took me longer to get to the age of 18 than it did to get from 18 to 80. And that old man wasn't wrong. That is the truth if I've ever heard it. No, I'm not 80. But if my next 30 years go as fast as the last 30, it seems I will be there in what seems like just a couple of months. Amazing, isn't it? How your perspective of time changes over time. It makes you agree with Albert Einstein. See, we think of time as constant, but Einstein proved, theoretically anyway, that time is not constant. Time is relative, his theory of relativity. Time is an illusion because time varies. Einstein said that it varies based on gravity and speed. Time slows down or speeds up depending on how fast you are moving. I'll take his word on that. His calculations have uh, held up well over the decades. And while I can't speak to these scientific facts, my experience bears out the same. It sure seems like time moves quicker the older you get. When you're young, you want to leap ahead, to jump ahead, to blast into the future. And when you are older, you want to take it slow and wring the life out of every second. You know they are so few. When you're young, seven years seems like an eternity. When you're old, you start wondering if you have seven years left. What does this have to do with the book of Ruth, you might ask? We're returning to that book today. We have arrived at a junction in this story that is all about time. Specifically, it is about waiting. Back to that opening statement. Don't you hate that? Waiting. Young or old, if it's Christmas or the arrival of a long-separated loved one or getting enough vaccines in arms for a sense of normalcy to return, no one really enjoys waiting. The young are impatient. The old are running out of time. Waiting seems like such a waste, but sometimes waiting is all that one can do. Sometimes waiting is the best that one can do. Sometimes waiting is the same thing as believing, as trusting. And yes, it's the same thing as hoping. Remember, that's what this book of Ruth is about. It's about hope. In Ruth chapter 3, Naomi has launched an audacious plan. She is sending Ruth, her widowed daughter-in-law, with a marriage proposal to Boaz. There's tons of background for those who want more of this background in our Winter Bible Study from last Wednesday. About 45 minutes of additional background. And I won't recover that ground this morning. I will summarize it all by saying that while the cultural and contextual practices of this chapter might be strange to us, The intentions should not be. Ruth is a vulnerable, at-risk young woman in a chauvinistic, misogynistic society. Boaz is a relative of her former father-in-law who has died. 
And as such, Boaz is in a position to protect Ruth and Naomi if he will. If he will take them in. But he has to marry Ruth for this to happen. And Naomi is making her bet that he will do exactly that. So she sends Ruth to him to woo him, to entice him, to challenge him to live up to his duty, to live up to his calling. Finally, Garrett will be happy as he has wanted me to give this series about Ruth and about hope, a Star Wars theme all along. There is a scene in the first Star Wars movie called Episode 4. It came out in 1977. Star Wars, A New Hope is the full title of the movie. A young Luke Skywalker is cleaning up a couple of rusty old droids. We know that the tall brass one is C-3PO and the little rolling trash can is R2-D2. And Luke accidentally triggers a message that comes from the inside of R2-D2. It's a hologram of Princess Leia. She has a word for someone on Luke's little backwoods planet. She says, This is our most desperate hour. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. And it plays on repeat over and over and over again. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You are my only hope. And it sends Luke looking for this Kenobi guy, old Ben, and it sends Luke to his destiny. And there you go. We take the cultural aberrations of millennia ago and we fuse it with the hypothetical culture of a galaxy once upon a time and far, far away. And it's the same appeal. It's this urgent request for help, for assistance, for redemption, for a future, for a new hope. Fictional in Star Wars. Ancient in the book of Ruth. But very real and very present in the time in which we live. God knows we need everything these women, Leah, Naomi, Ruth, we're asking for. We need some help down here. We need redemption. We long for a future. We need hope in our time. And remember, what is hope? Hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things, to quote the Shawshank Redemption one more time. And no good thing ever dies. That's what hope is. It is what never dies. More than some head in the cloud dream, it is tenacity. It is endurance. It is the power to bend but not to break under pressure. We battle. We suffer. But we remain. We are hurt. But we live. We are battered. But we are not defeated. We get disappointed by how things don't go the way we had planned, but still we are determined to stay in this game. Resiliency is what hope is. It gives people the ability, the stubbornness, to keep on keeping on. So when we ask for hope, when we pray for hope, we are asking for the fuel to get to the future. We are Asking for something to hold on to. 
We are asking for something to believe in. We are asking for something greater than ourselves that will sustain us today and tomorrow. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Help me, Boaz. Help me, O God. You are my only hope. And I am counting on You to carry me through it. And this is exactly where the waiting comes in. Naomi in the text makes her bet. She pushes all of her chips onto the table. And now she has to wait for all the cards to be shown. Ruth 3, verse number 18. Naomi said to Ruth, Just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man Boaz won't rest until he has settled things today. This is the sticky thing about hope. You trust, but you act like Naomi did. You believe, but you also put on your boots and your work gloves. You aspire and you expect, but you have to do your part too. And then, after you have done all you can do, after you have worked all you can work, you have to let time and God and all the moving parts that make up your complicated life do their thing. You have to do the hardest job of all. You have to wait. Because waiting is as much a part of hope as working. And sometimes the work is the waiting. I have a dear friend, one of those friends you know that you count on one hand. If you can count, if you've got five real friends that you can count on, you've got a treasure. And he's one of them. And he has been waiting for days now for a health diagnosis. Waiting, waiting, waiting. He got it this week, but it's not the diagnosis that he wanted. All those words you hate to hear. Radiation. Oncologist. Cancer. And so now he's facing weeks, a few months of treatments. What else can he do? And the wait. He waits to see if the treatment is effective. He waits to see if it will work. He waits to see if he has to go Further, he waits to see if he might have to face this again in the future. No one, not even those who love him the most, can take those questions away or take the weight away. It's his work to do. Waiting is the work. My son Bryce is recovering from knee surgery. I spoke to him just before I got here. He's doing well, really well. But he's young, so he's impatient. When can I get rid of this brace? When will the pain get better? When can I ditch these crutches? When can I walk again? When can I get back to light duty? When can I get back to normal? He has months to go. And the particular surgery that he had for a full recovery takes 12 months. And no one can speed that up. No one can rescue him from that. No one can change that timetable, not even God Himself. Waiting 
is the work. I'm not going to be dramatic, but I will (coughs) tell you the truth. I had a few days, a few nights in particular recently, when I thought my time had come. And I can still feel it up here. I knew it was going to be hard to talk straight for 20 minutes or so, but I am heaving and breathing pretty hard up here. But I thought my time had come. I'm dramatically improved from where I was. It was surreal. It was weird, even. Because I wasn't afraid. I wasn't even the least bit resistant to the prospect of dying. It was just like, so, this is how it happens. This is how easy it is just to let it all go. Because when your fever is north of 103, your heart rate is north of 140 while lying flat on your back, And for your life, you can't get your oxygen levels out of the 80s, much less up to 95 or 96% saturation where it is supposed to be. And you start communing with Elvis and Mark Twain and your grandmother on the other side, things ain't quite right. And in those few nights like that, when clarity would come to my air-deprived brain, all I could do was pray for daylight. If I can make it, to the morning, I would tell myself, then I can make it. Why are the nights so bad when it comes to sickness? I hope somebody can answer that for me. Even with your own children, if they've just got a bug of some sort, you can count on it. It's going to be bad when the sun goes down. But in the night, when there's nothing you can do, and seemingly nothing anyone can do for you, all that's left is the waiting Tick-tock, tick-tock. Minute by minute, hour by eternal, infernal hour, until finally, mercifully, the dawn comes. That's exactly how hope works. It doesn't change your condition. It doesn't heal you miraculously. It doesn't lift you necessarily from your bed of sickness or speed up your recovery time or change your diagnosis or change your prognosis, but it will hold you and it will fuel you. It will whisper in your ear, just hang in there. This story isn't over yet. And I know you are sitting still and it feels like it will never end or it feels like you are wasting your time, but shh. Settle down and settle in. That's the meaning of the word Naomi uses when she tells Ruth to be patient. Settle down. Just be patient, my daughter, Naomi says, until we hear what happens. The Hebrew word is yashav. It means take a seat. Sit down. Wait. Be still. Rendered literally, it means to inhabit, as in make yourself a home. Here Naomi is, 30 years into her story from where it begins in Ruth 1.1. She's lived half a century. Her people have been languishing about for some 400 years in chaos. And what does she conclude? We have to be patient just a little longer. Let's settle down. Let things be. Let God work. And believe it or not, that is what hope looks like 
most of the time. We're going to finish today with a song by one of my favorite songwriters. His name is Billy Sprague. He's a West Texan by birth. He did his three decades in Nashville. And now he leads a much quieter life here in Florida with his family. He's won four Dove Awards, made ten albums. He's written for Amy Grant, Michael W. Smith, Sandy Patty, and the Winans, and Susan Ashton, on and on. This particular song is called Waiting for the Day. He wrote the song 30 years ago, though he didn't publish it for some time afterwards. His fiancée, her name was Rose, was killed in an automobile accident on her way to one of his concerts. And the loss almost killed him as well. He didn't tour. He didn't write. He didn't sing. He could only grieve and wait while the grief did its work. He wrote Waiting for the Day on a train, traveling across Eastern Europe in the fall of 1989. The entire region was in upheaval. Solidarity in Poland. Independence movements in the Czech Republic and Romania. Perestroika in Russia. The Berlin Wall coming down in Germany. No one knew what was going to, hap- what was going to happen after 50 years of totalitarian rule by the Soviet Union. Waiting for the day was Sprague's hope for the future. His hope for what life could be like on the other side. The lyrics from the first verse. I am waiting for the day when my brothers will be free. And the walls are torn away like a light that ends a dream. I am certain that the night like a curtain will be raised. Though the end is not in sight, I am waiting for the day. And the last verse he added sometime later as he thought about Rose and her death. I am waiting for the day when the friends who've gone before Meet us by that crystal lake on a not-too-distant shore. And I am sure when time is done and the sky is rolled away, we will see the Holy One. I am waiting for the day. And every day we wait is a day of hope.